Good evening. Good evening. All right. Good evening, everyone. My name is Karen Andre, and I'll be your hostess for the evening. I'm co-chair for this committee that has brought uh, Kwame Toure down to the university tonight. Um, before I continue, I want to give um, thanks to the Black Heritage Committee and Student Government Association who helped fund this event, that helped make this possible, and the whole month of Black History Month possible, that we had such outstanding speakers, such as Betty Shabazz, Joanza Kanjufu, and now the legend himself, Dr. Kwame Toure. I really was anxious about having to introduce Dr. Toure because honestly, if you look at the list of his activities, the list of his uh, involvements over the years, it basically reflects the civil rights struggle, the freedom movement struggle, the black power struggle, the pan-African struggle. I mean, where do I stop or where do I begin rather? Uh, let me begin by saying that he was born June 29th. Should I say the year? 1941, in Trinidad and Tobago, Port of Spain, yes? That's from memory, you know that, right? All right, yeah. Um, a Pan-Africanist Pan leader, Dr. Torre has long been involved in the struggle for justice for Africans all over the world. As a student at Howard University, Dr. Torre was involved in the student movements in Washington, D.C. and across the country. He partook in the Mississippi Freedom Rides and was field secretary and then chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Kwame Ture helped organize the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964, as well as participating in the voting rights and black empowerment movements. Under Brother Kwame's leadership, SNCC was a leader in the anti-draft movement and initiated and led the black power cry movement. His leadership in this movement led to his election as Prime Minister of and Chief Organizer for the Black Panther Political Party. In 1968, he called for a Black United Front and began to advance the African liberation struggle around the world. Kwame Ture's support of liberation movements have led him across the world working with and supporting revolu excuse me, revolutionary organizations such as the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Pan-African Congress and the ANC in South Africa, and the American Indian Movement, and the International Indian Treaty Council in the Western Hemisphere. In 1968, he moved to Guinea to study under Sekou Toure and Kwame Nkrumah, the then presidents of Guinea and Ghana, respectively. He helped organize and is today a spokesperson for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Again, the list can continue on and on, but you've been delayed enough, and I know you're anxious to hear our speaker tonight, so I now present to you Dr. Kwame Toure. We uh, thank you very much. That uh, certainly was an excellent introduction took me back so long ago, so many years, you know, uh, I'm proud to say I was born in 1941, and my mother always tells me to say that because she's happy that I'm still alive because she didn't think I'd make it this far. So, so we're not ashamed of our age at all because our age represents nothing but experience and knowledge of our people's struggle, as we've always been on the front lines, and we shall die on the front lines of the people's struggle. So 
We're very honored to be here tonight. We want to raise some issues with you, some points. But our major task, of course, is to push to make you be responsible to your people. Of course, this is a critical task that we have on our hands, the task of making us be responsible to our people. You can see the critical nature of the task. You can see the critical nature of the task when you look at the suffering of the masses of our people, which is clear throughout the world, and you see the refusal of those who have the capacities to help alleviate the sufferings of the people, and they do absolutely nothing. Of course, we understand that when you make an analysis of any oppressed people, you cannot leave out the oppressor. Any analysis made of the oppressed must bring in the oppressor. Consequently, we understand that the reason why it appears as if these Africans who suffer so much seem to be irresponsible to their people is as a result of the capitalist system, which is our enemy, that puts it in a state that it does. Of course, when we say we come to fight for the people, we come to make you responsible to the people, you have to take out the cobwebs placed in your brains by the capitalist system. I want to make it clear to you here this evening, I'm anti-capitalist. So I do not want you to think that I come to brainwash you. I'm against capitalism. I know it is the enemy of my people. I know we will not be free until it is destroyed, and I know it is going to be destroyed. Consequently, I do not want you to think that I come to brainwash you. You may disagree with what I say. There's nothing wrong with that. To dispute the facts which we present, that's all we ask for. We understand that no people can be true unless they live the truth, and we are convinced of the correctness of the truth of which we speak because ours is not a result of thought, but a result of action and thought. The capitalist system will give all backward philosophies. For example, they have a philosophy which runs across the country that says that a man or woman is supposed to work hard, work hard, work hard, get enough material stuff, and then sit back and relax for the rest of their lives. And this represents success. Philosophy can so imbue students that when they get a piece of paper and graduate from the university, they never open another book. Frederick Douglass said, where there is no struggle, there is no progress. We do not think that people really properly comprehend this, but for us we understand since progress is eternal, struggle is eternal. Not only is struggle eternal, but those of us who are conscious women and conscious men, we come to understand properly that it is only through struggle that we accomplish anything. Certainly as students, you know this, you enter your Biology 101 class, if you do not struggle with the concepts of biology to master them, you will never learn biology, not even by osmosis. The only way you will acquire a knowledge of biology is through struggling and mastering the concepts of biology. And we say further, the student who attacks the most difficult concepts and masters them will be the best student. That is only struggle that advances us. And we want to tell you something about struggle. This capitalist system lies about you just struggle and then you stop and enjoy life. What the capitalist system even means to make it appear is that the most successful man or woman in the society is the one who consumes the most and produces the least. This is certainly animalistic living. 
conscious woman, any conscious man knows that a man, a woman, must produce more than they consume. After all, for us, since life is eternal and we are only passengers on the way road, we want to be sure that we make a contribution to life. Life has but one purpose. Its purpose is to advance life. Life has but one purpose. Its purpose is to advance life. Consequently, it means that if a man or a woman comes here as a human being, all they do is eat, sleep, reproduce, and pass on, why a dog does this? They have made no mark and no contribution to humanity. For what purpose did they come? Really, it's better they come as a cow. At least when they die, we can eat them and they can be of service to us. Apologize, we're trying to fix the sound for Brother Turing. We say that they should come as a cow. At least here, they will have served humanity. So we want to make it clear, any human being who comes on the face of the earth, consumes more than they produce, have not lived like a, like a human being. They have, lived like, they have lived life as an animal. Thus, in the first instance, we come to tell you, just as Norman people, that to live a proper life, you must produce more than you consume. We come to tell you that you certainly have a responsibility to your people, not only to your people, but certainly to all of humanity. This can be properly understood just from human beings themselves. No human being can grow to their human potential isolated from other human beings. All human beings can only grow up as human beings among other human beings. Biological facts are clear here. If you take a cat, a kitten, the minute it's born, you take a dog, a puppy, the minute it's born, you take a child, an infant, the minute it's born, and you throw all three in the woods, the puppy will grow up to be a dog. It'll walk on all four, it'll bark, it'll love bones. The kitten will grow up to be a cat, it'll walk on all four, it'll meow, it'll love mice. But the child, it's questioned whether or not the child will ever grow up. Why, the child might scratch itself to death since no one will cut its nails. And one thing is clear, even if the child does survive, the child will be incapable of making any contribution to human society because that child was not socialized by human society. We can push the point to its logical conclusion. We can say that an animal, a human being, separated from the human species is more stupid than any other animal separated from its species. Let us take the same example of the puppy, the kitten, and the child. Let us throw them to grow up with monkeys. I promise you that this kitten that has never seen a monkey, when it's opened his eyes, it will walk like a cat, it'll meow, it'll chase mice. The dog will do the same thing. It'll walk like a dog, it'll bark, it'll chase bones. But the human being, the child, it will eat monkey food, it will walk like a monkey, it will talk like a monkey, why, it will even try to make a contribution to monkey culture. <laughs> it is clear here that human beings can only reach their fullest potential among other human beings. Once this is properly understood, the conscious individual understands that depending upon the level of justice in the society, by the, by the society, depends upon the level of justice of the individual. The capitalist system, of course, will change all this. 
It will come to let you think that the individual is more important than the people. By even the way you speak, you've learned from the people. Everything that you have accomplished here in life, you've learned from the people. It is they who have given you everything. It is clear to us that since they give us everything, it is our responsibility to give back to them everything to advance life at all times. This will have serious repercussions among African students who do not comprehend precisely what we're saying. The Africans in America who do not think properly on their own culture but think like the enemy make great confusion. If you look at the struggle of Africans all over the world and in America, you will see that they struggle as a mass people. All their struggles are mass struggles. Yet, all their advancements are individual advancements. Here is properly. We say the masses struggle, and then the capitalist system gives us an individual who advances, maybe the first one to work for IBM, the first one to work for Coca-Cola, who knows. And this first one is so confused that they actually think that by being the first one to work for IBM that they have been a credit to the race. Indeed, they believe they have advanced the race. There's nothing but clear stupidity, backward thinking, confusion by the capitalist system. If the masses of our people suffer for our advancement, progress only comes when the masses advance. If the masses do not progress, there's no progress at all. If one knows this, there's no discussion about since the 60s. Certainly since the 60s, many individuals have climbed up. Some have become mayors, some basketball players, some football players, some on television, some movie directors. All of this is a result of the struggles of the masses of the people. But the conditions of the masses of our people become worse. For someone to discuss progress means that they're clearly confused. There's been no progress for our people. The conditions are worse. The only progress for our people is the rising consciousness of the masses, which will never stop. Aside from the rising consciousness of our people, the conditions are worse for the masses of our people. If you have rising consciousness and worse conditions, if you have rising consciousness and worse conditions, there's no question you're heading for the path of revolution. This is quite clear. We say you must not, of course, let the capitalist system confuse you. You must come for yourself to decide for yourself. The system makes you lazy, you know. I'm willing to bet you, without knowing any of you as students, this is my first time here in some years. I think it's my first time ever coming here, as a matter of fact. I'm willing to bet you that uh, no more than 3% of the students here read books outside of their assigned books by their professors, if they even read that. If they even read that. But since you do not go out and look for your history, you take which is given to you, and you think what is given to you is what you're supposed to get. The enemy will never give you the truth, and certainly will never give you your history. Teach. Teach. And we say no man, no woman looking for the truth cannot find it. Someone can hide the truth, but if you look for it, you'll find it. The only way you will not find the truth is if you do not look for the truth. We can give examples everywhere. Some years ago, when at Spelman College, around the time in Martin Luther King's birthday had just become a holiday, I had the opportunity to speak at Spelman College. You know those sisters were fired up. You know, Martin Luther King's birthday had just come. I mean, and they were out there. When I walked in, it was wall-to-wall -wall Africans, and they were excited. I asked them a question. How many of you love Martin Luther King? Put your hands up. I mean, some put both hands up. And I asked him a simple question. Keep your hands up if you have read one book by Dr. Martin Luther King. <laughs> oh, Brother Kwani, we love him. <laughs> they don't even read about King. All they know about King is what they get off of television, and the television can only give you sound bites at best. 
The other young student came running to me and said, oh, you know, it was Dr. King's birthday recently. I said, yes. He said, you know, I almost know his speech. I have a dream by heart. I said, that's excellent. He said, do you know it's the best speech that Dr. King ever gave? I told him, keep quiet. <laughs> you must not spread ignorance, especially among an oppressed people. <laughs> Anyone who knows anything about Dr. King knows that one of his most mediocre speeches is I have a dream speech. That's right. I commend one other speech to you if you really want to see Dr. King. It's called, Why I Oppose the War in Vietnam. It is here that you will come to see truly something about Dr. King. I want to give you examples so you can see what your responsibility is. You must not think that the enemy will ever come or anybody will ever come and give you instructions on your struggle. It is only you yourself who must find the thread of your struggle. It is your responsibility to understand the resistance of your struggle and to make your contribution to your struggle. When they get through with Dr. King's interpretation, since we don't read him or study him or analyze him, they make you believe that the greatest contribution Dr. King made to his people was nonviolence. And they call him a creative genius. Can you imagine that? That means that all Dr. King did with nonviolence was to take that from Mahatma Gandhi and adapt it to the situation in the United States. A genius doesn't have to do this. Why, even George Bush can do that. <laughs> but Dr. King certainly was a creative genius. And his contribution to us was not nonviolence. Matter of fact, when they get through with him, he sounds like Martin Luther, nonviolent, nonviolent King. <laughs> King's greatest contribution to us as a people was he taught us how to confront the enemy without fear. Right. When you properly understand this, then you will properly come to understand the real contribution that Martin Luther King made to his people. I would see him come into a town. All the signs were segregated. The Africans there were trembling when they saw white people. If they were walking on the sidewalk and a white person was coming, they have to get off the sidewalk, take off the hat and say, yes, sir, I have seen this in my life. I've seen these people come trembling, and Dr. King come to the town and said, we're going to change everything here. Oh, Dr. King, please don't talk too loud. She said, no, we're going to change everything here. We're going to turn these signs upside down. Oh, no, Dr. King, these white folk down here, they're too mean. Said, no, we're going to mobilize everybody. Dr. King, we ain't got no way. And Dr. King would look at him and say, my God is a mighty God. he make a way out of no way. And this same Dr. King would take these same people who were afraid of white people just two weeks later, and you will see eight-year-old girls, 82-year-old women, getting up, facing dogs, facing fire hoses, facing cattle prods, facing battens, facing horses, getting knocked down and getting up and going again with nothing in their hands except the righteous belief of the righteousness of their cause and nonviolence as their tactic. Dr. King would take the same man who was scared of white folks and have the same man face them with all the weapons in their hands, and this man had nothing but the conviction of the correctness of his cause. Dr. King is a great man. You must know precisely his greatness. I tell all the people in the world, I lay all the rebellions in this country at the feet of Dr. Martin Luther King. Of course. When Dr. King taught me how to face white people without guns, and they had all the guns, it didn't take nothing for me to pick up a gun and face them. <laughs> it took absolutely nothing. I could face them, look them in the eye, they'd knock me down, I'd get back up, they'd knock me down, I'd get back up, they put cigarettes on me, I'd get back up. Well, I could look them in the eye and do all this. Why, it didn't take anything to pick up. Matter of fact, I was ready for it. Dr. King, in fact, helped prepare me for picking up the gun. You must come to understand properly your history. One of the reasons why you get confused is because the capitalist system lets you think that you can think about something without being involved in that which you think about. Matter of fact, they let you think you're thinking. 
I see it all the time. You can even look at the television and watch a basketball game. People in the stands will criticize every basketball player. They've never been on the basketball court. Unless you've played basketball, you cannot criticize any basketball player. It is clear, unless you're involved in that which you're thinking about, you can't think about it. None of you who have not taken physics cannot think about physics. Of course, you can think you think about it. But the only way you can think about physics is when you're studying physics, involved in physics. The only way you can think about mathematics is when you're involved in it. If you say you are for world peace and you think about world peace, but you do absolutely nothing for world peace, you're not thinking about world peace. You're just thinking you're thinking about world peace. <laughs> so it is with the struggles of our people. I'm sure that if I asked all of you, do you want our people struggle to advance? Every hand must go up. The truth is so powerful that even liars must spit it out. <laughs> of course. Every hand would go up. Everybody wants the people to advance. Everybody wants us to get equality. Everybody wants terrorism to stop against us. Everybody wants racism to stop. Then you ask, how many are involved in the struggle to advance the people's cause? The hands will go down. But those who are not involved in the people's struggle, they feel, still think that they think about the people's struggle. We must stop this for you. You must come to understand that the only way you can think about your people's struggle is when you are involved in your people's struggle. And if you're not involved in your people's struggle, don't fool yourself. Don't let capitalism let you think that you're thinking about your people. <laughs> the capitalist system makes people stupid and then makes them arrogant in their stupidity. <laughs> not only do they not know, but they do not want to know. I've seen it everywhere. As a matter of fact, they take positions based on total ignorance. I told you I'm anti-capitalist, thus I'm a socialist. The other day, while I was just speaking about socialism, my brother said, Oh, Brother Kwame, you still talking about socialism? I said, Yes, sir. He said, he said Well, you know, uh, I ain't no socialist. I'm a capitalist. You know, America's a capitalist system and it's the greatest country in the world. Well, you know the line. I don't have to tell it to you. And uh, he said he was for capitalism. I asked the brother one simple question. Bro, how much capital you got in the bank? <laughs> just a simple question. He was unemployed. <laughs> well, you know what Malcolm said. The slave will work harder to put out the master's house when it's on fire than the master himself. They don't even know what capitalism is, they don't know what socialism is, but they take strong positions. Strongly, I'm against socialism. What is that? I'm against it. <laughs> if you say you love your people, then you want to know everything there is to know about your people. Do you know that if a little brother on this campus happens to be your boyfriend and he says he likes you, he wants to know everything about you? Who are you going with before me? <laughs> What'd you all do? How'd you all do it? <laughs> everything. Now, if you say you like a woman and you want to find out everything about one woman, and you say you love your people, and you don't want to find out anything about your people, you're lying. See, the capitalist system makes them lazy about every aspect of their life. That's why it must be struggled against without pity and without mercy. They will make you so confused if you're not struggling. People will really think that they're advancing the cause when they're not doing anything at all for the cause. If one is not involved in activity, one cannot think about that which one thinks one is thinking about. We want to make that clear. We want to make that crystal clear. You say the capitalist system makes the people lazy, won't let them read. I laugh. The other day a man came to me, told me he was a Christian. He an African. I told him, well, you're a Christian? He said, yeah. I said, can you read? He said, yeah, I can read. He said, when I was in the fifth grade, I was the best reader in my class. I said, good. 
I said, have you ever read the Bible from cover to cover? He said, no. I laughed. <laughs> he got upset. He laughed more. I'm a revolutionary, Jack. Truth don't jump before lies. It crushes lies without pity and without mercy. I laugh louder. Ha <laughs> You can read the Bible and you ain't never read the Bible. You call yourself a Christian. <laughs> he said, let me tell you something, Kwame Ture. You don't have to read the Bible to be a Christian. I clap for him. You're absolutely correct. But if you're a Christian and you can read and you don't read the Bible, you're a stupid Christian. <laughs> Chinese say, if you make a mistake and you know it's a mistake and you don't correct the mistake, you've made your second mistake. If any of you here call yourself Christians and you've not read your Bible from cover to cover, I want you to know you've made a mistake. You need to correct it. This man that I was talking to has everything to do with what we speak of. When an oppressor oppresses a people, his job is to make the people think they have the same history. His job is to make the people think they have the same culture. His job is to make the people think they have the same interests. As a matter of fact, the job of the slave master is to convince the slave that he's concerned about the interests of the slave more than his own interest. You know any slave who believes this is a stupid slave? Why, he'll pick cotton at night. <laughs> but if you know that whatever the interest of the master is is opposed to the interest of the slave, you will know when things are good for the master, it's bad for the slave. When things are bad for the master, it's good for the slave. This understanding is still not clear for many of us. Matter of fact, we think when American capitalism is in trouble, we in trouble. Get out of here. Give me a break. <laughs> Malcolm X said, whatever the enemy supports, you must oppose. Whatever the enemy opposes, you must support. <laughs> I remember when George Bush said he was going to go to war with Baghdad. I quickly sent a message to Saddam Hussein. I said, I'm with you. <laughs> I would you. That's it. This is most irrational. I said, let me tell you something. If I'm the imam of Mecca and American imperialism is fighting with the devil, I'm on the side of the devil. <laughs> Other man said, but you just irrational. What about Somalia? I said, don't break. Right, come on, I don't waste time with this. That's for others. I know they're wrong from the jump. So I don't even waste time with them. You mean you can't feed me in Harlem? You're going to go 10,000 miles to Somalia to feed me? Give me a break. want to make the Africans in America think that we have the same history. You know, some of us actually think we came here on the Mayflower. <laughs> you can look at the effect it has upon us. Look, America is a country of immigrants. Don't get confused. The only people in this country who are not immigrants are the indigenous people, those commonly called Indians because of Columbus's stupidity. <laughs> yeah, the only ones. Everybody else is an immigrant. And most of these immigrants come from two continents, Europe and Africa. If you will look, those Europeans who came as immigrants, they came voluntarily on their own. Each of them left Europe voluntarily, seeking a better life. We understand some of them are fleeing economic repression. Some were fleeing uh, religious intolerance, religious persecution. Some were fleeing jails, etc. But each and every one who got on a boat coming to America from Europe thought in their own conception that they were coming to a better life, however they defined it. No African. No African, not even the biggest Uncle Tom today, got on a slave boat voluntarily. <laughs> we were not running from economic oppression. We were not running from religious intolerance. And certainly we had no jails. And every African, once they left the continent of Africa and got into a slave ship, got into hell. And today we still find ourselves in hell. Now you look at logics. Here are people who voluntarily left their country. 
Here are those who've been forced against their country. In their country, they were happy, beating drums and dancing. You understand, in America, when they came here, they couldn't even beat the drum. First law, they outlawed the slavery. There's the first law in slavery was no drum beating for them. Because they can pass messages with them drums. We know that. No drum beating for them. You can even treat the bomb. You know what it is for us not to beat a drum. Give me a break. <laughs> even Trinidad, where I was born, they take cans and cut them down and make steel pan. They've got to beat a pan. <laughs> They couldn't even beat steel pans, no drums. None of that here, yes. These Africans have been catching royal hell in America. Ask the European, ask the African. What about your grandparents? The European will tell you, well, my great-grandmother came from Germany, my great-grandfather came from France, I go there in the summer, we have contact with the family. Ask an African. Where did your mother come from? Miami. <laughs> and your grandmother? Alabama. And your great-grandmother? Mississippi. And your great-great-grandmother, mm -hmm. you don't know, mm -hmm. I know, you know, yes. How do you know? Because I can look at you and know. Because Mother Africa is so strong, when she puts a stamp on you, 500 years of cold weather, Nat and Nola, and frying your hair will not disguise you. the Africans are ashamed to admit that they come from Africa. I don't see what they, we are the only ones who look like them. Don't nobody else in the world look like us. I know you're Blackfoot Indian and this one and that one, but don't nobody look like you. Not even the Blackfoot Indian looks like you. Maybe in your foot you're Blackfoot. <laughs> yes, but uh, the only ones who look in the world like us is Africans. The reason why they're ashamed of Africa, hear me well, is because they're totally ignorant of Africa. Any man, any woman knowing anything about Africa must be proud of Africa. It's only an ignorant man who knows nothing of world history who knows nothing of Africa. We could spend days here giving you the contributions of Africa to world civilization. We pick only one area, that of religion. This is extremely important for us because you know we are a religious people. But I want to show you that even in religion, even in the church, you've got to fight capitalism, otherwise it will confuse you. Africa gave monotheism to the world, belief in one God. And when Africa gave belief in one God to the world, nowhere else in the world were they preaching monotheism. Nowhere else. And we just tell you in passing, a sister said to me the other day, she said, you know, I don't like religions. So I said, no, why is that? She said, because all of them are male-dominated. I told her, you don't know nothing about your history. The first monotheistic religion, the first religion had one god came in out, coming out of Africa, had a female god. She was the head of the church. She was the head of it. In the African language, she's called Ast, A-A-S-T. The Greeks call her Isis, I-S-I-S. This was the first god. Judaism, the religion which preaches chronologically belief in one god, the first religion to do so, came out of Africa. It was Africa's gift to the world. I know this. When I see yell at Zionists and they come to tell me nonsense, well, how can you talk about it? Talk about our religion. I say, I can talk about your religion because I gave it to you. I know who I am. First Jews in the world were Africans. Everyone knows that. Judaism could only develop in Africa because it was only in Africa that monotheism existed. To the east of Africa, they were worshiping the sun. To the north of Africa, in Palestine, they were worshiping idols and would do so until the prophet Mohammed, peace be upon his name, came in the 6th century to give them monotheism. These are historical facts. These are undeniable historical facts. As a matter of fact, don't take me, this ranting, raving revolutionary, as your point of documentation for Africa's contribution to Judaism. I give you Sigmund Freud. 
his last book, Moses and Monotheism, a book which they hide, incidentally. But if you go to the library, you'll find it. You'll find it. It'll surprise you. <laughs> I was telling a man the other day, you know, he said, you're always condemning American capitalism and the education system. I said, I have to. It makes the people lazy, stupid. He said, why say that? I said, listen, I live outside of America. When a revolutionary regime seizes power, they ban reactionary books. When a reactionary regime seizes power, they burn revolutionary books. But in America, you ain't got to ban or burn nothing. Put them in the library. Don't nobody read them. <laughs> oh, my. If it ain't assigned by the teacher, what am I going to read it for? <laughs> the book is called Moses and Monotheism by Sigmund Freud. It's his last book. Here, Sigmund Freud, using archaeological Science, psych, historical, psychological, and every other type of scientific proof comes to document for the whole world that Judaism began in Africa and Moses was an African. Right. 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 Mrs. Claire, so we know our history, so we do not get confused. Africa's contributions to Christianity were outstanding. I want to pause a little because you know so many of us call ourselves Christians. Call ourselves Christians. Don't read the Bible. Don't know nothing about the history of Christianity. The capitalist system will drive you to frivolity away from the forces that affect your lives. I'm sure there are brothers and sisters sitting before me who are Christians and at the same time are members of fraternities and sororities. And I'm willing to bet you nine out of ten of them know more about the history of the fraternity and the sorority than they do of the history of Christianity. We are not here putting down any frat member, any soror sister, it must be clear here. But what we're saying is a fact. Even the frat brother or the soror sister who is a Christian will have to tell us that Christianity is more important than the fraternity. These Christians don't even read the Bible. The other day I met a white man. He's a fundamentalist, a born-again Christian. We were on the plane. He didn't know who I was. And he was just, you know how when they get born again, they just want to spread the word. Well, I'm cool with me, you know. <laughs> I'm real cool with me because that's my job, so I can learn something from him, you know. How he's talking about how he's born again Christian. In the middle of it, when he stopped, I said, um, well, uh, you know, I said, I'm African. He said, yes, I see you wearing all those clothes from Africa. I said, yes, I'm from Africa. And uh, what do you think about Africa? He said, well, you know, I don't have too much thoughts. I said, what do you think about its history? He said, well, I don't have too much thoughts about it. I said, but <laughs> you're not a Christian. He said, what? I said, you're not a Christian. I said, if you were a Christian, you'd have to respect Africa. When Jesus Christ, peace be upon his name, was in trouble, and everybody was trying to kill him, it was only Africa that granted him refuge. Everybody else went, no, Africa told him, you can't touch him. Come here, Jesus. That's where he went. That's where he spent his early life. That's where he grew physically, spiritually, intellectually, preparing himself for his later works. These are facts. The first church in the world came out of Africa. The first monastery in the world came out of Africa. The very intellectual development of the church came out of Alexandria, which is in Egypt, which still is in Africa. Everywhere you look, Africa's contributions to Christianity, we say, are outstanding. And you know, these Africans in America who call themselves Christians are ashamed of Africa. They don't even read their Bibles. Why? The very first country mentioned in the Bible, Genesis 2, verse 13, is Ethiopia. Depending upon your version of the Bible, it might be spelled Kush, spelled K-U-S-H or C-U-S-H. Any authoritative source will inform you that Kush is the ancient name for Ethiopia. That's Genesis 2, verse 13. If these Africans would read their Bible, they would see Egypt and Ethiopia is mentioned more in the Bible than even Israel. Right. No African who truly says they are Christian, understanding their religion, cannot respect Africa. It's only a Christian who's a hypocrite who says he's a Christian, carried a Bible under the arm, but don't open it. <laughs> Capitalism will confuse you. 
European culture has a tendency to make the particular history of Europe, the particular culture of history, of the particular culture of Europe, universal. We must fight against this. Because each member of the human race makes a proper contribution to history. They will confuse you. Anyone knowing the history of Christianity knows that it took 400 years after the death of Jesus Christ for Christianity to enter into Europe. 400 years after his death. These are historical facts. Yet everywhere you go, and I see how capitalism messes with my people, oh, God, give them strength to fight. I go to a church in Africa, a church in the Caribbean, a church in South America, a church in, Afri in America, among these Africans, and 99% of them, when I walk in the church, have a picture of a white Jesus with blonde hair, blue eyes, and Jesus Christ never stepped his foot in Europe. Never. <laughs> I mean, I'm not concerned with the call of Jesus Christ. That's not our problem here. But we can truthfully say that Jesus Christ, peace be upon his name, could be just about any color. But the one color he definitely could not be is the color he's always painted. Matter of fact, if these Christians would do the slightest research, they will come to find out that this white Jesus, which they are bowing down before, is nothing other than the uncle of Michelangelo who used him as the model to paint the picture. So we just want to show you in the first instance that the capitalist system will so demobilize you that you don't even know Christianity. You know, us as a people, like ain't nothing more important to us than religion even to this day. I mean, if I could just collect the energy given off at our churches on a Sunday, put them together and direct them against the enemy, we would have been free. <laughs> we give off more energy in churches than we get excited about religion more than any aspect of our life. We are more enthusiastic about religion than we are about our history. We are more enthusiastic about our religion than we are about anything else. And you who are students supposed to be helping the people, you don't even read your Bible. You don't even know your history. The reason we say why people are ashamed of Africa is because of total ignorance. That's when you find a brother or sister who's telling you, I ain't no African. Don't get angry with them. Just pump a little bit of knowledge about Africa into them to stimulate them to want to look at Africa. You don't want to convince them. All you want to do is look, because once they look at Africa and pick up the history, I'll tell you, they will be so proud to be Africans, you understand? They will let nobody fool them. Not only will they not try to look like the enemy, not only will they stop frying their hair, they'll probably go straight to dread. <laughs> so there'll be no mistake here. <laughs> no confusion at all. <laughs> yes, we must come to know our history. You have a responsibility to come to know your people's history. This is your responsibility. If you say you love your people, you must want to know everything there is to know about your people. It is only when you come to love your people that you will be able to serve them. We have said from the very beginning that one must love to struggle. We understand properly the philosophies of our people. We do not get confused. In the Caribbean where I was born, the Africans in their sing-song English, speaking about the role of struggle, say, the rougher the water, the stronger the swimmer. Otherwise, he go under. In Baton Rouge, they say, if you see me fighting with a bear, help the bear. Pour honey on me. <laughs> Your people understand struggle and are not afraid of struggle. Not only must you not be afraid of struggle, you must look for the greatest struggle. The American capitalist system teaches you to take the path of least resistance. A slave who seeks to be free and looks for the easy route out, will never be free. 
The only slave who will be free is the slave who looks for the roughest route, knowing that when he takes this route, when she comes over these obstacles, no force on earth can stop her, and she can always be more convinced to carry on and wage the struggle. That's what Harriet Tubman represents. Constant struggle. We want to make this aspect of constant struggle clear. Of course, the capitalism, of course, will confuse you. It presents things only as one-sided, one-sided, that things are only one side. When they talk about the Indians and the cowboys, you just get the cowboy side, not the Indian side. When they talk about the struggle in Palestine, it's just the Zionists, never the Palestine. I mean, never. The other day, someone was sitting down looking at a movie. It was a movie about how these, you know, the Jewish people had suffered, and now because they're suffering, they were going to Palestine, a Zionist picture. So it was on television. So I walked out the room. Someone said, oh, you know, you are so racist. I said, I'm racist. Yes, this a story is just a story about people suffering and just their suffering. And you think, I said, when last have you seen a picture of a Palestinian family suffering on television? You will never see it. You will never see it because they don't want to work up your sentiments to support the Palestinians. So the only stories you see are suffering stories of them all the time, all the time, all the time. One-sided view of life is given everywhere, this one-sided view of life we must come to look at the other side. We must come to investigate the other side. And when you investigate the other side, the other side falls. I told you that I was a socialist, and I am. I know that, oh, I must tell you this, because capitalism just confuses you. The other day I told a brother I was socialist. He said, you still socialist? I said, yeah. He said, but it fell. I said, really? He said, yeah, you didn't hear about it? I said, no, I didn't hear about it. He said, it collapsed. I said, oh. He said, you didn't hear about the Soviet Union? They're gone. I said, really? I said, listen. I said, you mustn't get confused. You know, capitalism doesn't just rape your labor and rip off your resources. It deforms your thinking. It deforms your thinking. I told the man, you're not thinking. He said, what do you mean? He said, I saw it happen. It's finished. I said, you never judge a system by its adherents. You never judge any system by its believers. You judge it by its principles. He said, I don't understand what you're talking about. I said, all I'm saying to you, brother, is you don't judge socialism by socialists. He said, you're talking double talk. I said, am I? He said, if you tell me that you can't judge socialism by socialists, who you judge it by? I said, let me ask you one question. Do you judge Christianity by Christians? If you judge Christianity by Christians, it fell with Judas. <laughs> and if it didn't fall with Judas, so many, many Christians in so many, many ways every day violates every principle of Christianity. When you judge a system, you judge it by its principles. Christianity has been betrayed everywhere. The Pope used it to divide the world. Slave masters used it to bring about slavery. But me, I will never condemn Christianity. I know its principles. The principles are just, therefore eternal. Any man, any woman, any time wishing to live a just life can pick up the principles, imitate them, and live them. So it is with socialism. You must not get confused. Socialism hasn't gone anywhere. It has been betrayed, yes. But betrayal doesn't mean collapse. Perhaps they get confused because at least Judas had the dignity after betraying Christianity to hang himself. <laughs> Gorbachev is still running around the world picking up pieces of silver. <laughs> must be clear here and not confused. I'm a socialist. One other thing I must tell you now. They confuse people about socialism. Brother the other day said, why ain't no socialist? I said, why not, brother? He said, because it's a white thing. I said, oh, really? You see, Europe tries to make believe that everything that comes out of the world comes out of Europe. 
I told the man, I said, socialism ain't no white thing. He said, yes, it is. He said, Karl Marx discovered it. I told him, Karl Marx never discovered socialism. He cannot. You call the laws of gravity Newton's laws. I'm sure there's a mnemonic device to help you on your quizzes. <laughs> but you certainly cannot believe that Isaac Newton can found that a body falls at the rate of 32 feet per second squared per second squared. He can't find this. He can't discover it. He cannot invent this. He can only observe it and record it, discover the law. If I'm sitting in Timbuktu in Africa, and I've never heard of Sir Isaac Newton, and I'm conducting any experiments with gravity, I will come to the same conclusion that he does. A body in motion tends to stay in motion unless stopped by an outside force. He cannot invent this. He can only observe it and record it. Uh, Marx did not invent socialism. If I'm sitting in Libya, in the desert, and I'm doing any research with capital labor without ever having heard of Karl Marx, I will come to the same conclusion that he did, that any time capital seeks to dominate labor, there'll be a ruthless, uncompromising struggle on the part of labor until it comes to crush capital and dominate it. This is a fact. My history demonstrates that. We came here as chattel slaves for centuries. We fought and fought and fought until we crushed it. Now we're just slave of the wage, and now we've got to rise up and crush that one. That's a disclare that Karl Marx didn't invent socialism. It's there for all to see. Karl Marx's great contribution to the world was in the area of historical materialism and dialectical materialism, something you need to know if you know about socialism. But since you don't know about socialism, you don't even know the words. And not only does the enemy keep you ignorant, you stay ignorant. You won't ever go read a book about socialism. Why read a book about socialism? They already told me in my class it ain't no good. You will not even read a book about such. Why, you don't even read a book about your history. We come to inspire you to learn. We come to tell you that when you come to serve a people, you must know as much as you can. The more you know, the better able you are to serve the people. We here are revolutionaries, and we understand as revolutionaries that we stand on principles. You must not get confused. The American capitalist system does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. It's a fact everywhere. Matter of fact, you will read in your very textbooks that they say, politics is the art of compromise. Another lie. I'm a revolutionary. I understand that where principles are involved, there is no compromise. Osagifo, Kwame Nkrumah, that noble son of Africa, says, any compromise of principle is an abandonment of principle. When one speaks of principle, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no in-between. It's either one side or the other. When the capitalist press want to attack the all-African people's revolutionary party, they tell people all the time, don't you all go listen to them. They're crazy. Especially that one Kwame Ture. He was crazy in the 60s. He's crazier in the 90s. <laughs> well, you know, they call Malcolm crazy, so they're not going to call me sane. <laughs> and I'll never be sane in a system that's insane. That's clear. <laughs> They said, oh, he's just extremist. You know, for him, everything is one side or the other. It's either white or black. Ain't nothing gray. It's either hot or cold. Ain't nothing warm. It's either wet or dry. Ain't nothing damp. They're correct. We're revolutionaries, and we fight for principles, and there is no compromise. You know this well as students. When you recount a story, either you lie or you tell the truth. Where's the middle ground? On a test, either you cheat or you do not. There is no gray area. And there ain't no such thing like, I did a little cheating on the test. <laughs> Either you believe in God, or you do not. But the capitalist system will confuse you. A sister the other day tried to make middle ground, said, oh, I heard what you said about God, but let me tell you something. It's true that I believe in God, but I have my doubts. I told her, once you start doubting God, you have stopped 
believing in God. There is no middle ground in principle. If your people are oppressed, and you are not struggling to help alleviate the sufferings of your people, by your very active in actions, you are against your people. The point must be properly comprehended. The point must be properly driven home. Because the capitalist system will let you think that I ain't against the people, but I ain't doing nothing for them. If you ain't doing nothing for them, you're against them. If your mother is being raped, and you put your hands behind your back, and you look at the television and say, I ain't got nothing to do with it, you're against your mother. Right. If your people are being raped, and you're looking at television, enjoying your time, you're against your people. It's as simple as that. Right. The only way we will advance as a people is when we come ourselves to take our advancement into our hands in a scientific manner. For us, there is no in-between on socialism or capitalism. We know this. Socialism is nothing but an economic system like capitalism. There can only be two in the world, only two. And there can only be two because each economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the means of production? Who will own and control the wealth of the country? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everybody will own. It's as simple as that. Of course, they will confuse you. America prides herself on being the richest country in the world. She ought to be. She's the biggest thief in the world. <laughs> Stole my mama. That's right. I know what I'm talking about. She belittles Cuba because Cuba's a poor country. Big that. Like if something has to do with how much money you get, even if you steal it. Well, in America, you know, it's so corrupt that everybody makes money by stealing, but the more you get, the less people ask you how you got it. So they come to condemn Fidel Castro. Some people even think that because Cuba is poor, America can just walk in there and shoot them up. Vietnam was poor. That's right. Vietnam was very poor. When I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam, because you know, I didn't go to fight the Vietnamese. They ain't did me nothing. I know my enemy. I'm not confused. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm not confused. When they call me, listen, I was in Mississippi getting terrorized trying to get my people to vote. They called me up in New York in the draft boards. What you call me for? Well, you got to go to Vietnam and fight for democracy, give them the right to vote. <laughs> and they said it with a straight face. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> so I never got confused with them. No, but the Vietnamese whooped America on one bowl of rice a day. I don't know what makes them think the Cubans can't whip them on half a bowl. <laughs> and as for all you little Cubans out, you always planning. Look here, they've been planning on Castro since the Bay of Pigs. Let them plan on. <laughs> they will keep on planning. But Fidel Castro is a great man, and all people who love justice respect him. <laughs> look at the situation. Cuba is a poor country. Of that, there is no question. But do you know in Cuba? Every child from the time they're born until they die will have perfect health care free of charge to every level. They won't even pay for medicine. It's a poor country. Cuba's a poor country, but if you were a student in Cuba, you wouldn't pay a penny for your education. Not a penny. When you look at poor Cuba and see its concern for its citizens, and you look at rich America and see its homeless, of which Cuba has none, you can see the difference between capitalism and socialism. This is an inevitable system. Don't you worry about these Cubans out here. Listen, they have so much disrespect for us that you know they're the only group in the country that picketed Mandela. I mean, more poor Mandela. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, if they picket Mandela, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> well, Mandela's calling for peace. I'm calling for shotgun. Fire him up. Shoot them all. 
<laughs> but you know, we told them the other day, said, listen, you better go tell those Cubans that they better be careful with these Africans, because these Africans, they rise up and burn. And next time they burn that part of Miami, they can't swim back to Cuba. <laughs> so they better be real cool, walk slightly with us. <laughs> you understand? They're going to play all that tra la with them other people. These Africans, when they jump up, Jack, they burn. And when they burn, after they sit down, they don't give a damn about nothing else. That's a fact. You know, people get confused. The other day I was talking about the rebellion in uh, Los Angeles in April. A journalist said, well, you seem excited about it. I said, of course I am. It means resistance is growing. I'm a revolutionary. I want resistance to grow. He said, well, you know, these people burned up their property. I told him, give me a break. <laughs> in capitalist system, property is more important than everything else. It's a sacred, sacred, sacred value. And private property, oh, that's the most sacred of all. Yes, it's so sacred that even men think the women are their private property. I mean, it's a sacred concept. But if I'm willing to die for my liberation, what's my house? <laughs> I told them, I said, let me give you some history. In 1803, Haiti was the only, underline the word only, the only democratic country in the world. It was the only country in the world that did not allow slavery. Haiti was. America can talk about democracy, we understand it, but Haiti, now not only that, in order to maintain that, they had to fight every major European slaveholding power. I want to give you some of your history because you don't even know it. When the Haitians, the Africans in Haiti, rose up against the French colonialism, Napoleon was at dizzying heights of power in Europe. He dominated Europe. When they informed that some Africans rose up against him in Haiti, he said, what? These Africans, I'm, Russia's at my feet, Germany's at my feet, some Africans in some little island. He got his brother-in-law, Lerlek. He said, you go there and crush them. Oh, Lerlek got his troops, and they got troops, and they came to crush those Africans. But let me tell you something you don't know. Once history is made, it can never be unmade. Once history is made, even if it's not recorded, it leaves its indelible mark upon the consciousness of the people. And once a people taste freedom, they will never go back to slavery at all. These slaves waited for the French, these Africans just riding out of slavery and to watch the French, and the French came. And when they saw the French was actually coming on the island, you know what the first law of the Haitian Revolution was? The first order, burn the island to a crisp. And that's just what they did. They burnt the entire island. Then they told the French, all right, let's go. We're going to tango now. Because <laughs> there's a fight to the death. Either we win or we die. There is no in-between here. Anyone who knows anything about law knows burning property means absolutely nothing. When the Germans were advancing on the Soviet Union, Stalin gave the law, burn everything. Don't let them get nothing. It was the Soviet Union they were burning. It was their own country. They just want to put property value above you and confuse you. Oh, they're burning their house. They don't even belong to us anyway. Well, burn them. Look here, for my freedom, I'll burn anything. You understand? I wouldn't even think twice about it. You understand? So uh, don't let them confuse you. Resistance is growing, and they're trying to stop it by confusing you, which you burn in your own buildings. I'll burn your mama for my freedom. <laughs> right. You must not let them confuse you at all. Of course, this rebellion in in April has a lot to do with the struggle that we're involved in. We work for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Ours is a revolutionary party. We've showed you we're not, integrated, we're, not, we're not interested in integrating into the capitalist system. We're out to destroy it. We've already understood it to be an anti-human system. 
So we're not discussing. We want to, we're going to destroy it. That's all. So we don't run for the Democratic Party, not us. We're not running for mayor, not us. We're only running for one thing, revolution with a capital R. All right. Right. And we've been running for that all our life. So we're too old now to change. <laughs> you know, just too old now to change. I'm sorry, I got to keep going the way I'm going. We say that the only solution to our people's problem, we say the only solution, of course, all of you who are interested in your people's struggle must know about what the solution is to your people's struggle. That's clear. At least you must be thinking about it. After all, you cannot see somebody you love in problems and not think how to help at least solve the problems. We say the only solution is Pan-Africanism. And Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. We say what the Honorable Marcus Garvey said years ago, until Africa is free, no African anywhere in the world will ever be free. Consequently, <laughs> consequently we understand the necessity for this struggle here. Of course, some of you may not agree with us. We have no problem here. Some of you say, oh, this brother came to talk to us about, uh, we don't believe, all right, I have no problem with you. We say we have two purposes here. One purpose here, to make you responsible to your people. Of course, being responsible to your people can only be done in action, not just in thought. I think we've eliminated that. If you will look properly at what we said happens to be our solution, you may disagree with it. But if you want to make a contribution to your people's struggle, you must look at the history of your people. Of your people. And when you look at the history of your people, you must see where they're going. And you must join in the march with them. Now, a lot of people make a lot of confusion. <laughs> Man, I don't know why he got this from. A nice journalist. He was a nice guy. He said, um... What do you think about Bill Clinton? I said, who? He said, I mean, Bill Clinton in relations to... I said, me, I never look at anybody outside my people. It's only my people that advances me. I'm not confused. But they will even confuse you and let you think that somebody outside of a race, a good white man, advances us. I mean, they even got in the law that Abraham Lincoln freed us. Dig that. I mean, and people really believe it. If you just look at statistical facts, not analysis, you'll see this is just another lie. In 1859, they hung John Brown. Why they hung him? Because he wanted to start a civil war. But I tell you, history cannot be denied. They hung him in 1859, and the man who hung him was Lee, who was then working for the federal government. And the same Lee, two years later, had to attack the same federal government where he hung John Lee. Two years. You must know history. No man, no woman can go against the force of history. You must be a part of this force, so you must understand it properly. He said they hung John Brown, but by 1861, the Civil War broke out. Frederick Douglass wore out his shoes going to Abraham Lincoln, telling him, free the slaves. His generals were writing him all the time, saying, look, these white southerners got a force that they're using. These slaves dig their ditches. These slaves cook for them. These slaves mend their uniforms. These slaves clean their guns. These slaves tend for them when they're sick. This is a force that we must take away from them. Lincoln absolutely refused. It was not until 1863 when the South was winning the war and it was clear the North was absolutely about to lose the war that Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Facts. These are facts. And in 1863, when he freed the slaves, Frederick Douglass wore out his feet going to him town. Let the slaves pick up the guns. Let the slaves pick up the guns. His generals were writing to him. He said, these slaves can be good fighters. You know, let them pick up the gun. He refused. It was not until clear that the South was winning the war, and there was no way that in 1864 he signed a bill to let the slaves pick up the gun. And when the slaves picked up the gun, in nine months, the war was over. 
the war was over. Could you imagine that this, my slave master, have been brutalizing my mama, brutalizing me, and you give me a gun and you tell me I got, ah, where is he, Jack? <laughs> the slaves had all the motivation to fight. The slaves had every reason to fight. And their motivating force was beyond that. As a matter of fact, when the slaves came, the white troops just fell back. These are just historical facts. Yet you read every book on the civil rights movement, no recognition is given to us for our role in the struggle. Abraham Lincoln, a good white man, took pity on you. He freed you. Thank you, Abraham. <laughs> Brother was telling me once in the 1960s, never forget, a journalist came to me and said, aren't you happy for President Johnson? I said, President Johnson? He said, what do you think about him? I said, just any other white man. He said, no, you must like him. I said, why? He said, he signed the Civil Rights Bill for you. I said, yes, he did. But while he was signing, my people were burning up these streets of this country. He better hurry up and sign something. <laughs> It is your people and your people alone who advance you. So I told the man, I've never looked to a white hope. I thought that was a white thing. I don't look to Bill Clinton. I look only to the masses of my people. If you will look at the history of the masses of your people, you will see that we have certain aspects which we have to highlight and certain aspects which we do not need to highlight. The other day, a man got up before a crowd of us. He said, you know, we people, we just can't never stick together. We never stick together. We ain't never been united. We ain't united nothing. We like crabs in a barrel. I told him, shut up. I'm a revolutionary. I don't let you come talk nonsense before the people. I remember once I did a meeting somewhere, and a journalist came after. He said, you know, everything you said about your people was good. Don't they have bad points? I said, of course they do. He said, why didn't you mention it? I said, because that's all the enemy talks about. And I'm not going to come here and help the enemy. The enemy tells us all the time we're bad, and even some of us who don't know any better, we too come. Hey, listen, if you can't say nothing good about your people, shut up. You sound like the enemy spreading propaganda even inside here. And he doesn't even know anything about the people. He knows absolutely nothing about the people's struggle. He's coming to make a great comment on the people's struggle. If you look at your people, we have unity of action. We lack unity of thought. But our unity of action, I mean, it shocks us. In 1965, the African and Watts revolted. I mean, revolted. They shocked America. Shocked themselves. We did that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm a revolutionary. Making and planning mass revolts is my job. I tell you a secret. I've been doing it a long time. When I was in SNCC, we used to use non-violence cover to make rebellions in Houston, Texas, in Atlanta, Georgia, Cambridge, Maryland. <laughs> I mean, we'd be just like King, yeah, we non-violent, we'd bop him with a <laughs> And that's all I do. And if anyone ever came to me and said, we want you to make a rebellion in Los Angeles, I'd really be happy to do that. But I have to honestly tell them that really at this time I can't do it. But these Africans in Los Angeles, they hear something they don't like, which they consider to be an injustice. Without the slightest planning, everybody in mass jumps up and takes on Los Angeles. We have strong unity of action. I mean, you have it too. Don't get confused. If tonight, after I leave here, the local clan rides up on the campus, puts up some racist signs, slaps a couple of sisters, brothers around, tomorrow morning, every African out here be out here. Even the Uncle Toms, let's get down. We got to do something. And I promise you, for three or four days, you'll be very hot. There'll be no peace on this campus for three or four days. White students even be afraid of you. And after three or four days, you will sit down, and you'll forget about it. And the Uncle Tom will say, oh, God, please don't let him come back before I graduate. <laughs> we have unity of action. 
we lack <laughs> unity of thought. It's because we lack unity of thought that our unity of action is so spontaneous. We jump up and sit down. We jump up and sit down. We must come to qualify our action. We must come to get unity of thought. This unity of action is powerful, and it comes from mobilization. A young student came to me the other day and said, Oh, Brother Kwame Ture, I sure wish I was around the 60s. I said, Why? I never want to go back in history. I want to go forward. And what lies before me is far greater and brighter than what lay before me in the 60s. He said, Well, you know, in the 60s we were so united. I said, Were we? He said, Yeah. I told him, No, we were not. He said, We were not. I said, No, we were not. Sajifo Kwame and Krumah says, Unity presupposes organization. If you have no organization, you can't be united. Unity is not a feeling. I imagine when the clan comes up here and you're, 30 or, you're three or four days when you're real hot, everybody say, hey, brother, what's happening? Hey, sister, what's happening? Yeah, get down, brother, sister. You think you got unity. Unity is not a feeling. Unity is not an emotion. Unity is a means of channeling the energies of the people towards given objectives within principles. In the 1960s, we had no organizations. We had mobilization. You must not get confused between mobilization and organization. The confusion can be compounded if one doesn't study properly Dr. King and doesn't know him. Dr. King was one of the greatest mobilizers this century has ever seen, but he never organized. He was not an organizer. And for him, he didn't need organizing. After all, Dr. King was a reformist. When you're a reformist, all you need to do is to put pressure on the people to tell them to do right. Because all Dr. King saw as his job was to put pressure on the American government to show them that they should live up to the Constitution. That was his task. When you want power, you organize. Because you don't want to put influence. You want to seize power for yourself and do for yourself what you put in pressure for the others to do for you. Because Dr. King never thought of organization. Of course, when you mobilize, everybody can be against the same thing. When you organize, everybody must be for the same thing. You mustn't think everybody being against the same thing means that everybody is for the same thing. That's where the confusion arises. The nationalist struggle, the struggle for independence in Africa, is indicative here. It's instructive. All Africans, all Africans wanted the colonial system out. They wanted it destroyed. But some Africans, like Mobutu, wanted the white man out to take his place so they continue exploiting Africans. Some Africans, like Lumumba, wanted to destroy the colonial system so they can set up an equitable system for all Africans. Just because everybody's against the same thing doesn't mean everybody's for the same thing. When the Klan comes here, every African student will be against the Klan. We say even the Uncle Tom. But just because everybody's against the Klan together doesn't mean that everybody's for the same thing. And unity doesn't represent what you're against. It represents what you are for. Consequently, when one speaks of unity, one must speak of organization. No people, no people can be free. No people will ever be free unless they are consciously organized. No people. The only thing standing between us and our liberation is organization. This is the only thing stopping us. We are the most disorganized people on the face of the earth. The most disorganized the only way we will come to make advancement is when we organize our people. We told you our responsibility here to you tonight was to make you responsible to your people. And we said this responsibility must be manifested in action, not in thought, which is sterile without action. The only way that you can seriously help your people is when you come to organize for your people. All the problems we have in this country is lack of organization. Let me show you the problem with Haiti. 
Even in reform analysis, we, because we're not organized, there's nothing we can do. Do you know that Africans in this country have more elected officials than any other ethnic group in the country? Some of you don't even know that you have three. Did you know you have 320 mayors in this country? 320 mayors at least. And they're mayors of the biggest cities in this country. New York, Newark, Detroit, Philadelphia, uh, Washington, D.C., all the way to Los Angeles. We have over 7,000 elected officials in this country, more than any other ethnic group. And all of them, 99.999% of them, all of them belong to the Democratic Party. Ron Brown is chairperson of the Democratic Party. Jesse Jackson is the most popular Democrat. And with all this, we have no power at all in the Democratic Party. None at all. As a matter of fact, you can see the helplessness of this, the rebellion in April. In 1965, the Africans rebelled in what? A white man was mayor, Yorty. For all practical purposes, we can say a racist. In 1992, when they rebelled, it was an African who was mayor, Tom Bradley, who came up through the ranks of the police. He's incapable of doing anything, not even stopping the terrorism, but redressing injustice. As a matter of fact, when the, just, when the decision is handed down, he sounded like Rodney King's mother. Hey, thank you, but it's a raw deal. <laughs> and he's the mayor. And he's the mayor. What are you mayor for? Are you for a job or what is it? I mean, if you're a mayor, you should do something. At least tell the people we got to rise up. Yes. Because they get confused. They think that these positions which they arrive at, they arrived at on their own. Therefore, the position belongs to them. Bradley actually thinks that the mayorship belongs to him because he struggled for it. That position belongs to the blood of our people. Anytime he doesn't use it for the blood of our people, he has betrayed our people. people struggle, every position that the people advance must be used to advance the struggle. You must not think that we're just here talking about politicians, we're talking about you students. All of you know that in order for you to attend this university, blood of your people had to be spilled. That's right. That's right. All of you know that. You must not confuse yourself, as does Bradley and all these others, and think that the education which you receive here belongs to you. We said you have to fight the capitalist system. You know it's a vicious system. It will make everything a commodity. It took our mothers and put them on an ocean block and sell them, made them a commodity. If you're not careful, it will make knowledge a commodity. Knowledge has but one fundamental purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one fundamental purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. If you're not careful, capitalism will so confuse you that you will think knowledge is a commodity that you acquire it, and then at the end of four years, come and sell it on the marketplace to the highest bidder. Whether it be IBM, Coca-Cola, or whoever, and with your individual thinking, you will assure that you're advancing the race. The education which you get here belongs to the masses of your people. Anytime you use this education for any other reason other than advancing the struggles of your people, you have betrayed the blood of your people. You have a serious responsibility to your people. This responsibility is imposed upon you because of the very history of your people. Malcolm X said, revolution is bloody. It knows no compromise. It overturns and destroys everything in its path. He's correct. The other day when speaking about revolution, a brother said, well, you know, I'll go for that revolution stuff, but you know, that bloodshed stuff bothers me. I laughed at him. He said, you know nothing about your people's history. We are the 
only people in this country who shed blood for reforms. Dig that. I mean for reforms. To ride on a bus where you pay the same money like everybody pay and sit where you want to sit, we've got to shed our blood. If you have money and you want to buy a house anywhere in America and you're an African to live there, you've got to shed your blood. To get into schools like this, schools where we pay our taxes just like everybody else, we've got to shed our blood. To get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute they get here, we've got to shed our blood. Nobody sitting in this audience can give me one example of one advancement of our people, even individual, which was not at the price of the shedding of the blood of the masses of our people. Right. We shed blood for reform. What you scared of? Logic will impose itself upon the people. Since we shed blood for reform and we ain't going nowhere, let's get together, shed blood for revolution, make it and be free once and for all. You must understand clearly your people's history. It's only your people's history that will tell you where you're going. The people must be organized. Our people are courageous. They fight. Man told me, our people, shut up. You know nothing about these people. I see 82-year-old women face dogs. I've seen it. I've seen 16-year-old brothers throw Molotov cocktails at tanks rolling down our community. I've seen it. These people have courage. These people have determination. These people lack organization. This is what we come to impose upon you. Our party's a revolutionary party. When you go out the door, you will find some of our comrades there who've come here to help organize you. You're interested, you stop, and you find out about our party. But ours is a revolutionary party. We discipline, we discipline ourselves rigorously to the necessities of the struggles of our people. Nothing is more important to us than the interests of the masses of our people. And we do not play with this and can never compromise it. So if you come to our party, you come to a serious party. When you begin our party, the first thing we ask you to do is to read. Could you hear that? The very first thing we demand is just read. For the first six months, your only obligation is to read five pages a day of certain books about our history. We want to impose upon our people reading as a systematic manner of acquiring knowledge. We don't read, you know. I mean, we're the best dancers on the college campus, and we're dancing all the time. Seems if you could do something good, you should strengthen your weak points. We're the worst readers on the college campus. And if you truly understood the history of your people, all of you would be the best students on this campus because your people sacrifice for you to get knowledge which they need to advance them. We want you to organize your people. <coughs> We'd like you to join our organization, but let me tell you now, because I know the capitalist system will confuse you. Say, oh, we went to hear Brother Kwame Ture in the 60s. He was crazy. He's crazy now. Now you're talking about revolution and Africa and socialism. I ain't in it. I ain't got no problem with it. But you must admit that you do have a responsibility to your people. You have to admit that. And that if you will not fulfill your responsibility the same way that others fulfill their responsibility, the responsibility must be fulfilled. So you may disagree with the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I have no problem with you. That is to say, if you do not belong to the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, I have no problem with you. But you better belong to the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And you better not be no card-carrying member. You better be sure enough member. If you're not a member of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party or a member of the NAACP, you need to be a member of the Urban League. If you're not a member of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, you need to be a member of the Nation of Islam. If you truly care about your people, you need to be in an organization fighting for your people, because I can tell you the truth. 
I'm a bad brother. I mean, look, I didn't even think I lived this long. That's how bad I am, you understand? But uh, <laughs> listen, <laughs> I'm bad, you understand? I know I'm bad. But as bad as I am, I know I could not struggle alone. And from the time I've been conscious, I have never been out of an organization in my life. I've been expelled from some. I've been forced to resign from them. But before I'm expelled, I'm already in another one. Before I resign, I've already joined another one, of course. Malcolm X was assassinated when he was in between organizations. I understood that. That's how I've always been in an organization. I'll tell you, I'm bad. If bad brothers or bad sisters could win the fight, look here, we would already won it because we've produced some of the greatest men and women that this century has seen throughout the world. It is not great men or great women that will make the struggle. Only the organized masses will take us to our proper liberation. We are finished. We have in hope, we've imparted to you in some ideas, <coughs> through truthful struggle, the necessity for you to wake up and be responsible to your people. We hope that we've properly documented to you that if you are not involved in struggle for your people, that you are against your people. We hope we've provided properly the solution for you. We've told you organization. Particularly, we've told you ours, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. But without that, we've told you to sign any organization. And we tell you, if you look at all the organizations which we have as a people, and none of these organizations represent to you the correct solution to our people's problems, then you, just like any other conscious African, has the responsibility to create the organization that will lead us to our liberation. We will only be free when we are consciously organized. You have a responsibility to make. Come, organize the masses of your people. Thank you. Ready for the revolution. thanks is not enough, but on behalf of the audience and the students, family, friends, and people present, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Ture, for delivering such an inspirational and organizational message to us. And those of you inter interested in organizations on campus, we have For Young Brothers Only, For Young Brothers Only, we have um, Black Student Leadership Council, chair back there, Shamine Graham, if she'd like to stand, if you'd like to speak to her about joining. And we have Black Student Union and many others that maybe are waiting to be formed. Think about it. Right now, we will entertain questions from the audience. As you see, we have three microphones in the aisles. Uh, feel free to come up. Dr. Toure is open and willing and able to answer all questions, I suppose. All right, let's have it. Good evening, Comrade Touré. In the past five years, we've seen U.S. imperialists arm the Zionist government of Israel against the Palestinian people. In the past two years, the United States has supported the building of residential areas in the Gaza and West Bank. Uh, the Palestinian people continue to suffer in spite of the 
peace talks orchestrated by the U.S. imperialists. I was wondering if you had any comment on this and how does it pertain to Pan-Africanism? Thank you very much. It's an excellent point. <clears throat> I knew it would come in the question, so uh, we left it out. We must make a clear distinction between Judaism, a religion, and Zionism, a political philosophy. Zionism as a political philosophy is illegal, racist, immoral, and unjust. But all unjust systems seek always to dominate religions. Slavery sought to dominate Christianity to the point that some people could actually think that a slave master is a Christian. Of course, a slave master can never be a Christian. So Zionism itself tries to control Judaism and make Jews kill Palestinians in the name of God. Anyone looking at these two systems will come to see the unjust nature of Zionism. We must be involved in this struggle. Martin Luther King was fond of saying that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, anywhere there is injustice, conscious men and women must support the struggle for justice. The Palestinians are involved in a struggle for justice. We must support them. This struggle must be properly understood. Not only must we support the Palestinians, but you must know that Zionism is our direct enemy. If you will look at the Zionist state of Israel, you will see that they are number one producers of polished diamonds in the world. There are no diamonds in Palestine. All those diamonds come from Azania, South Africa, taken out of there by the blood of our people. They're now taken to Israel, polished, and sold all over the world for the benefit of everybody except us. If you will look properly, even at your television clips here, you will see the racists in Azania, South Africa, look at their guns properly. The machine guns they have are called Uzi submachine guns. They are made in Israel, and they're sent there to shoot us down. The state of Israel have invaded the sovereign territory of Uganda. It has made war with Egypt. It has shot down civilian planes of Libya. It has invaded Tunisia. It has nothing but contempt for Africans. Not only does it bother us in Africa, man was telling me, that's in Africa. In America, what they do to us is pathetic. I can stand up here in this audience. I can criticize Bill Clinton. I can call him all sorts of mama jamma, whatever I want to call him. No white person in the country will call John Jacobs or call uh, uh, Jesse Jackson and say, did you hear what Kwame Ture said about Bill Clinton? You better stop that. But if I get up and say something against Israel, they call Jesse Jackson. You better tell him not to do that. Make a statement against him. They cause confusion among us without even thinking twice about it, showing us the contempt for which they have for us. Everyone. <laughs> Look at the problem between Farrakhan and Jackson. The Zionists started it. Anytime you say something against them, they'll call up another one and say, hey, you better attack him. You heard what he said about him? You better show that you're not an anti-Semitic. Listen, I get up ever since I've been a young man in 1967 when with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee we made our position against Zionism. I've always told everyone I am anti-Zionist. Tomorrow in the newspaper you will read Kwame Ture is anti-Semitic. I've never said I'm anti-Semitic. I tell you what I am. I'm anti-Zionist. I cannot be anti-Semitic. When you use the word Semite, you use a, bi a word of biological specification. Arafat is a Semite. Sharon is not a Semite. He's a Kosakoid. 
So I'm not confused. If I support the Palestinians, I support the Semites. I cannot be anti-Semitic. And of course, they can't say anti-Jewish. I know that this is my people's contribution to humanity. I'll never be against that which my people gave to humanity. I am anti-Zionist, and they affect us. You know, the Zionists control the political situation in America. George Bush used to yell, bad, but when they told him jump, he used to say, how high? <laughs> yes. All the money that goes to this vicious state to get guns to shoot down the Palestinian people should be used to clean up the homeless inside of this country. They will bomb Saddam Hussein for violating laws. Israel has violated every law in the United Nations, and nobody in the United Nations dares to take any sanction against them. They put Palestinians, kick them in the cold, 15 years old, 16 years old. All the Americans go there, take them back, take them back. No, nobody does anything. This is an unjust state, and we are revolutionaries. Kwame Nkrumah teaches us the secret of life is to have no fear. The only fear we have is being irresponsible to our people. Zionism is an illegal, racist, unjust political system, and all of us have a responsibility to give unconditional support to the Palestine Liberation Organization, just like America gives unconditional support to the Zionist state of Israel. Next question. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Ture, you mentioned that uh, if you see Africa, you will love Africa. Now, we know that um, the entire world is infiltrated so much by Western and European values and um, uh, monetary influence, etc. What part of Africa or what things in Africa are there left for us to look at and love? The culture of Africa, the history of Africa, and the resistance of the people of Africa to advance towards justice. Of course, it's also a very, very, very beautiful continent, mm -hmm. just physically speaking. Okay, just uh, one follow-up uh, question. I haven't read the literature which may tell about what you're doing now, where you're living, and things of that nature. Uh, so will you uh, respond to that? Where are you living? What are you doing on a daily basis? I have been living in the People's Revolutionary Republic of Guinea since the end of 1968. When I moved to Guinea in 1968, there were two co-presidents, President Kwame Nkrumah, who was made co-president after he was overthrown by the CIA in Ghana, and President Sekou Toure. I went to Africa for revolution. People go for other reasons. And Guinea was the most revolutionary country at that time. The Democratic Party of Guinea was a party in power. It was a mass party, a socialist party, and it advanced life for us. When Secretary Ray died in 1984, the military, who had the confidence of the people as members of our party, violated that confidence and seized power. Once they seized power, obviously it meant that they had betrayed the nation. Struggle here must ensue. Our party had armed all the people in the country. Everyone up to 1984 in Guinea knows how to shoot. The government taught them how to shoot, just like in Cuba. In Cuba, the government taught everybody how to shoot and gives them a gun, and there's no gang warfare there. Everybody has a gun. But through betrayals of the leaders of the people's militia, 
this problem became confused. Anyway, to make a long story short, we don't have time to go into all the political discussions. We were not able to wage the armed struggle which I wanted to wage at that point. Thus, we were forced to wage political struggle. Since 1984, our party, from the back, have sent students against the military in contradiction against them. They've killed them. We've sent workers against them. They've killed them. We've sent the unemployed against them because in the social system there was no unemployed. Since they've come to power, they've created unemployment. We've sent the unemployed against them. We've sent women against them. We have sent every sector against them to weaken them and bring them down. By 1991, we felt that we were strong enough to start meeting, even though they had abolished us as a party. We met publicly, though in private places, and the regime was so weak that they could not begin to function. At that time, this was in 1991, I received one of the highest political honors I've ever received. I was made political advisor to the youth wing of the party. The youth wing goes up to the age of 40 years, thus this is a striking force of the party. Through our constant meeting and pressure on the army, it became clear that they could not stop us as we were meeting and had done proper work over these last eight years, though I must tell you, all of our cadre were arrested, all of them were tortured, I myself was arrested, so they arrested us all. They thought they had everything under control, but we are fighters here, Jack. You arrest me, you really look for trouble now, Jack. <laughs> so uh, we've organized by 1991, they couldn't stop it. So in April last year, of 1992, seeing they could no longer stop the party, understanding that they were too weak to impose any sanctions against us, they unbanned the very party which they themselves had banned in 1984. You've already seen their weakness. But in order to cause confusion, they also legalized 42 other parties. They thought they would cause confusion. Matter of fact, we welcomed it. By December of last year, it became clear to them that they could not win an election. Therefore, they, who having placed an election date in April for December 27th, now got rid of that date. They said they will not have it. Because of the line I was advocating in the Democratic Party of Guinea, I was now appointed political advisor to the entire party. We've already started putting our people in place. I promise you, as Africa is my mother, this year we bring them down by any means necessary. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was quite uh, an honor an opportunity to hear you speak tonight. I'm glad my brother and his family had a chance to hear you too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, um, I'd, like, I'd like you to make a comment or to, to you know, try and make a connection between our struggle here in America and the struggle in Africa, um, especially in Southern Africa and in Western Africa. And uh, try, you know, try to comment on the Pan-Africanist aspect of you know, our struggle. Well, I think the problem is that, first of all, many of us do not know we're Africans. That's first. So since we don't know we're Africans, we do not know that the interests of Africa should be supreme in our lives. So our first task is, of course, to let them come to understand that they are Africans, you know, and that uh, they, uh, more than anybody else, must look to Africa because they were snatched out of there against their will. Once they begin to do that, they'll begin to see that the same problems that are found in Africa are the same problems that are found here in America. And once they begin to do that, they will see the same enemies we have in Africa is the same enemies we have here in America. When they do more and more work, they will come to see exactly what the Honorable Marcus Garvey says, we're one people, we're one God, and one destiny. Consequently, our work with Pan-Africanism is to let them know, first of all, that they are Africans. Once they know this, 
then the logics will follow properly. But it is clear that uh, the more Africa advances, the more we advance. Uh, I remember, this is a fact, I give you a story. When I was a student at Howard University in the 1960s, a lot of people, and I've read a lot of books on the civil rights, what they call the civil rights movement, the human rights struggle, but I've never seen anybody mention in their book the role that independent Africa had to play on the speeding up of desegregation in this country. And I know the role it played. I'll give you one concrete example. When the African continent began, got a lot of independence in the 1960s, they sent ambassadors to this country. Now, usually in America, you'll have two ambassadors. One is an ambassador to the United Nations, which is a mission to the United Nations. The other one is a real embassy, the embassy to the United States of America, which is found in Washington, D.C., which is the capital of America. So in the early 60s, these African diplomats used to ride by car between New York and Washington. Now, once you leave New York and New Jersey, which wasn't segregated, you enter Delaware, which was segregated. You came into Maryland, which was segregated, before again you could arrive at Washington, D.C. Well, these poor diplomats, they got confused with this democracy that they heard about in America. <laughs> and uh, when they would come along Route 40, which was in Maryland, and they get hungry, they want to go eat. And when they got in there, those white folks didn't care what, I don't care what robe you're wearing, you ain't coming in here. <laughs> so all their clothes meant nothing, they were putting them out. The State Department had to go to every store on Route 40 and tell the owners that when these Africans come in here, wearing their clothes, driving these big cars, let them in. Because when you do not, the voice of Moscow burns us in Africa, telling these Africans, hey, America talk about democracy. Look what they do to your diplomat. Look at this, look at that. So the Russians were hitting them. You understand? So as a student, Howard, when we found this out, this is the truth. I've never done this, but we collected some money had a brother there who was a funeral home, lent us his uh, limousine. We borrowed some clothes from brothers and sisters on the continent, put them on, and we picked the biggest restaurant there that was the most racist, pulled up in his car, got out, had the man open the door, walked in, <laughs> sat down, ordered our food, and we talked among ourselves quietly. Whenever they get next to us, we say, we ate perfectly. <laughs> we paid for the money. And when we came to the cash table, we went to pay the money. We said, oh, we thank you all very much. You sure did nice down here. <laughs> so I understand the power that the independence movement had upon the desegregation movement. Since the enemy doesn't want us to know that, they do not mention it. But I know it. And I also know that a lot of the struggle that comes here comes from pressure from African countries. So. Uh, since we're all suffering the same thing, it behooves us to form the biggest possible organization to fight. So Pan-Africanism is a necessity. Thank you. Hello, good evening. Um, you mentioned the Caribbean. Uh, I have another question to ask after this one, but what, uh, which country in the Caribbean were you born? The slave ship dropped me in Trinidad. Trinidad? <laughs> okay. And the second one, um, African Americans, uh, as, as we are all aware, have gone from really physical slavery to mental slavery. And um, blacks throughout the United States know the Caribbeans and the Latin blacks and even the Jewish blacks are not very unified. Um, aside from, I suppose, self-knowledge, which will, of course, in turn, hopefully uh, evoke self-respect, uh, what else do you think is needed 
for the blacks throughout the country to unify more than they are. It's organization. We said that we have unity of action, we lack unity of thought. Mm. And unity of thought only comes from organization. When everybody's for the same thing, there's unified thought. So just by getting in organizations, we'll begin to see what unified thought is, and from there we'll move until we form one big organization. Um, as, um, as an Afro-Nicaraguan who has chaired the path of discovering what's been denied to us, part of our humanity, I have enjoyed uh, many aspects of your presentation, um, celebrating that, that uh, truth has been denied from us. Um, also, I have very much enjoyed your defense of the Cuban Revolution, something that, you know, we should all, we have to um, engage daily here in Miami. Um, I particularly enjoy as well your description of um, the role of um, uh, the Democratic Party uh, to this day um, as a concrete obstacle for, you know, charting a path forward. Um, you know, and, and pointing out to the old elected officials and uh, the mayors and so on, and uh, particularly Mayor Bradley. I lived in L.A. for five years, so I, I know Mayor Bradley. He, he has a history, by the way, in the, in oh. the Watts riots. Uh, he, <laughs> That's how he, he came, came up. up through the police force. That's what That's I said. Right. He Shooting, was a lieutenant in the police force. Us. Yes. Um, but I, precisely the, um, um, that fact helps to point to uh, something that I believe, which is where I disagree with you. She's where this is, um, uh, the struggle today um, is less in that, in the framework of color, um, because the, um, although it, it is an important part of it, we are, like I said, I, I'm coming from the same path. But the fact that, um, uh, you know, when we say our people, when we say there is a black nation, undoubtedly, but it's a nation that has classes. Of course. A nation that has classes that have diverting interests. I think we've pointed that As, out between Mobutu and Lumumba. I believe that precisely the path that Malcolm X traveled led him from nationalism towards internationalism. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I share more the views of I believe um, Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress and the perspective they are putting forward today, which I encourage everybody, as you say, you know, to read. The only way to make up our minds about this thing is to read, you know, these speeches our, ourselves. So I, I you know, I, that's why I believe that um, a concrete example of where we can go wrong in this path is, I believe, looking on the on the U.S. war against the people of Iraq. Uh, where I campaign day in and day out from the, you know, uh, from the get-go against this war. Uh, but I also pointed out that uh, the fact that Saddam Hussein is Arab uh, did not make him, did not put him on the side of his people. He represented interests that were alien to the interests of the Iraqi people. Uh, and um, matter of fact, he, 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 was, he led them to slaughter that took place. He abandoned them in Kuwait. Uh, so I believe that it's, this, you know, to, to best put ourselves in the perspective that we can, you know, that we can, uh, you know, that we can oppose U.S. imperialism and, you know, the, the upcoming wars and the, and the deepening crisis 
uh, I believe that you know we be, we must begin firmly within our class uh, and and look for um, all the allies we can fight for you know from that perspective. Okay, but I do think that if you listen very carefully to us, that uh, we recognize these class differences essentially. We've separated the individual advancement against that of the masses. We've shown the difference between Mobutu and Lumumba, which is that of a neo-colonialist versus a socialist. We said we were socialists, and when one says one is a socialist, class struggle here is implied. Sometimes, because of the cultural differences, people miss the same concepts being preached. Most people think that Malcolm X became a socialist in the last nine months of his life after he left the Nation of Islam. But if you listen to Malcolm X, he had clear and precise class divisions in our community when he gave us the house slave and the field slave. Here is a proper class distinction. So these class distinctions do exist. Maybe we do not use the same political terms as uh, our relationship to the means of production, which makes us here and there. But the class struggle is intact there, because if you're not for Mobutu and you're for Lumba, and they're both Africans, there must be a reason. If these mayors are powerless and they come from us and we have no respect for them, there must be a reason. So the class struggle is always there. But when you speak before, of course, if we're speaking to our party, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, now we use terms about, okay, what is the relationship to the means of production, why are they here? But when you speak to people who are confused by imperialism, you want to give them broad outlines of this class struggle to move them step by step. As they get into their organizations, these organizations will really pull the hard line on political education. So we are in total agreement with you. We may disagree just in what appears in language uh, and tactics and how, how hard you want to uh, push the class line, uh, other than just leave uh, general outlines in the beginning. So when we speak to an audience like this, we leave general outlines. But uh, if we were speaking in Cuba, or if we're speaking in Guinea-Bissau, or if we're speaking in Tanzania, these socialist countries, uh, we will make Karl Marx sound like our brother. <laughs> so uh, we... Uh, Continually uh, do this 100%. Of course, uh, we must tell you, if we didn't tell you, that uh, everybody must read Karl Marx. He's a great man. All right. Okay, if they want to do fast, we go. It's up to you. I'm at your disposition. Okay, I was um, explaining to Brother Toure that we're having an open reception tonight. Brother Toure has insisted that there will be no elitism. There will be no VIP list for people to go upstairs afterwards to have a private reception. Everyone is invited to the reception. Uh, it will be in here in the ballroom. So that way, everyone can have their equal chance to ask questions. So I apologize to the people who have been standing. We'll take two more questions, and then we'll open up everything to everyone in the ballroom. Um, Brother Troy, did you want to announce? We just want to make sure to remind you now, if you're interested in our party, that. Uh, Brother Kweku is at our table, so as you pass out, you get some information. And if you're serious, want to know about our organization, information about it, you can help him, uh, speak to him there, and he'll give you a list. We uh, also have to announce to you that uh, the Republic of New Africa, an organization that fights in your name, if not for you, will have uh, Black Nation Day, which they've been having for years, and it's March 26th, 27th, and 28th of this year in Jackson, Mississippi. There's a flyer here, so... Any of those who are interested, we can pass it on to them. Yeah. We go to one, two, three. 
Listen, okay, listen. listen. We go three across, and uh, I'm ready, but they say the other two we can ask upstairs. Is that okay? Giving all thanks and praises to the Most High, Emperor Eli Selassie, Jarastafari. I'd like to thank the I for being a mentor as a youth and for guiding I and I. I would like to have the I comment on Garveyism and it being the solution, or part of the solution, to bring I and I, the displaced slaves that was dropped in the Americas, meaning South, South Dakota, South Carolina, South Trinidad, South Jamaica, et cetera, et cetera. And with that, show Nainai that Garveyism was the answer and why it's been hidden from Nainai black people. Slasiai. Give thanks. We give thanks. The Honorable Marcus Garvey has achieved what today no African has achieved. He had one of the largest organizations that we as a people has ever had. A membership of over five million people scattered all over the world. Garvey had members of his Universal Negro Improvement African Community Leagues in Azania, South Africa. He had members in Egypt. He had members in Lagos, Nigeria. He had members in Liberia, in Sierra Leone. He had members throughout the Caribbean. He had members in Costa Rica, all through Central America, in Nicaragua, in Honduras. And he had members in America, the United States of America, the length and breadth of America. And he had members in Canada. And his only slogan was, Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. And this was in 1919. The Honorable Marcus Garvey was clear, and if you read anything, anything by the Honorable Marcus Garvey, you must come to truly understand the greatness of him. I mean, his lines are just so powerful. He has one in every case that, our cause is so just that if it takes us till eternity, we shall win. <laughs> Honorable Marcus Garvey. The Honorable Marcus Garvey had an idea that we should combine our resources and start shipping companies to begin to take us back to Africa and develop trade between the points of the African uh, world, in Africa, in the Caribbean, in America. His shipping line was called the Black Star Line. You must know history. If you will study seriously the movement of the Honorable Marcus Garvey, you will see that Garvey's ships sank in the Hudson River. And if you do proper research, you will see that the man who brought this about was none other than J. Edgar Hoover, the man who arrested the Honorable Marcus Garvey. He infiltrated the movement with the scum of our race. One man who was supposed to be in the Navy was supposed to know about boats. Garvey was an honest man, but he knew nothing about boats. So the people who bought the boats bought terrible boats. I mean, look, at they worked so perfectly their scheme that when Garvey called all the people to come to New York in the Hudson River to see the boats take off, they sank right before the eyes of the people. The FBI rejoiced. They had a glorious day. Kwame Nkrumah said in his autobiography, I have read many great books. I've read Karl Marx, I've read Engels, I've read Hegel, I've read Schopenhauer, he said. But of all the books I've read, none 
has fired my enthusiasm like the philosophies and opinions of the Honorable Marcus Garvey. Kwame Nkrumah was born in Ghana. The Honorable Marcus Garvey was born in Jamaica. The Honorable Marcus Garvey made a strong move in the United States around this black flag. Their ships went down in the 1920s. And Krumah knew about the Honorable Marcus Garvey when he came to America in the 1930s. And Krumah went to London in 1941. Dr. Marcus Garvey died in 1940. Thus, Kwame Krumah never met the Honorable Marcus Garvey. But as soon as Kwame Krumah drove the British out of Ghana and made it an independent Ghana, the first thing he did was to establish a Black Star shipping line, which today goes all over the world. And Krumah was to tell me, they laughed at Garvey. They will never laugh at us again. You must come to know the Honorable Marcus Garvey. You must come to read the Honorable Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey is a great man. He worked more for any human being for Africa during his lifetime, and the Honorable Marcus Garvey never saw Africa. He never put his foot in it. But if you read this man Garvey talking about Africa, you will think this man was born there. Garvey was not confused. He understood that Africa was the richest continent on the face of the earth, and when properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Garvey was no fool. Garvey had a newspaper, The Negro World, which in the 1920s published in three languages, French, English, and Spanish, and history books call him a buffoon. Even to this day, you cannot find a newspaper in three languages, maybe Spanish and English, but Spanish, English, and French put out by some Africans, and it is correct. Marcus Garvey, they haven't seen anything. Like he said, look for me in the whirlwind, and as Africa is my mother, the whirlwind, sure enough, is coming. Dr. Torrey, are you a Christian? Uh, no, I'm not. No, all right. Um, perhaps. But of course, I must tell you now, I study the Bible, I study the Koran, I study the Torah, I study the books of certitude from the Baha'i faith, I've read the two volumes of Nishirindir Shonan, I study all the time the works of Buddhists, I study all religious works, simply because I know as a human being, since these books have affected these many people for this length of time, and I have to be reacting with them, it behooves me to know what these forces are. Well, I also am not a Christian, but, um, and I have read different things, I suspect not nearly as far as you have. Um, perhaps you could interpret or help me with my understanding of a passage in the Bible that says something to the effect that when your enemy offers you, or when your enemy strikes your left cheek, offer him your right. And what does that say about nonviolence? Well, you know, in the same Bible, when Jesus Christ, peace be upon his name, was going to be arrested, he looked around the people around him and he says, he who does not have a sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. This is the same Jesus, peace be upon his name. <laughs> so it contradicts itself? It contradicts I understand itself. it properly. I understand 
that when Jesus Christ, peace be upon his name, said turn the other cheek, at that time it was tactically wise to use nonviolence. But when the forces had changed, he said pick up the sword. <laughs> it is the same Jesus, peace be upon his name, that took a bullwhip in his hand and drove the money changers out of the temple. The only reason he had the bullwhip was because the gun was not invented. <laughs> so I think if we look at the Bible together, we will see here a lot of uh, terms that we must properly understand and uh, we must not confuse tactics with principles. This is an error that Dr. Martin Luther King made and this also helps to confound the error. Dr. King took nonviolence, which is a tactic, and made it a principle. Being an honest man, he came to compound his error because being an honest man, he couldn't compromise the principle. So he was forced to say, at all times, under all conditions, we must use nonviolence. Malcolm X was correct. Malcolm said, nonviolence can only be a principle in a nonviolent world, as Martin Luther King's death came to prove. So uh, in the Bible, as I said, I'm not a Christian, and, but I studied the Bible, and like all Africans, I had no choice. I was spoon-fed the Bible. And so uh, I think if you look at both of them, there are many, many parts that will support the right to fight as the right to keep quiet. But I think uh, it's a tactic, because the Bible says there's a time to speak, there's a time to keep quiet, there's a time to make peace, time to make war. So I think that uh, if you look properly, it's just tactics. Because when, uh, even, you know, when, uh, when, when, they, when Jesus, when they came to get him the first time, they had more people and when somebody cut off the air, somebody said, no, you don't want to do that. Jesus put the air back on. He said, wait, we're outnumbered. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Hotel, my brother. Um, in your opinion, what is the best, in your opinion, what is the best source of, uh, to get information out of Africa? Um, a lot of times we don't know what to believe, who to believe, where to believe it from. Um, and in your opinion, I'd just like you to clear that up for me. Uh, as our comrade here, our brother, was mentioning, all organizations that are fighting put out their own periodical. Let me give you an idea. I'm sure many brothers and sisters here have heard of Minister Louis Farrakhan. Yeah. And I'm willing to bet you very few of them have ever read the final call. Now, they get their information about Louis Farrakhan from the capitalist press and the capitalist media. Every week, I read the final call. So I read, that's the final call is the paper of Minister Louis Farrakhan. Every day on CNN, I will hear something about the ANC. But I read the publication of the ANC on a weekly basis. Our party, what is that publication? Uh, Shabasha, they have one for the armed struggle, Shabaka. They have a couple of others awake. For NCs and Como, the armed struggle arm, the one I used to, oh, to read a lot, that one is called Sabasha. But since they've uh, come down with the armed struggle, they don't publish that too much. But they have other publications. Uh, they have letters from uh, Mandela, his speeches, etc., etc. So you can read them from the Pan Africanist Congress. They have Azania Combat. Uh, the Black Conscious Movement of Azania have uh, Lisheshe. So uh, 
uh, all of these organizations, the Palestine Liberation Organization, every week we get their journals, you know, Free Palestine, speeches made by Arafat, documentations which they send out publicly, press releases. Our party has uh, relationships with over 113 revolutionary organizations in government, and we receive their periodicals. And uh, while well, certainly maybe many for an unorganized person, at least we want to let you know that you can get the information directly from everybody who's putting it out. So you should go directly to them and you will get what they're saying about their struggle. All right, we wish to thank you. We wish to inform you once again, if you're interested about uh, joining our party, two brothers, serious brothers who've made a commitment are in the back and we turn the podium over thank and thank Brother Max ever so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you. We have, we have two more announcements. Remember, we're going to have a reception right over here, and we have refreshments out there. We'd also like to announce that two members of the ANC Youth Section will be touring the United States in early April to, uh, to this area. Uh, for more information, you can contact myself, or there will be some other members who will be uh, over on the side. And I'd like to thank uh, our hostess for the evening, Sister Karen Andre, standing over there. And I want to thank everyone for coming out. Thank you.